0: You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about sociology, featuring our guest Mary Patillo, the Harold Washington Professor of Sociology and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Northwestern University. Dr. Patillo's research and teaching focus on urban sociology, race and ethnicity, and inequality. She is widely considered the foremost scholar of the black middle class, having published two books and countless articles on the politics of race and class across various African American communities in Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Patillo.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So, just to start, how would you define or explain the field of sociology to someone who was new at it in an intro to sociology kind of class.
1: So sociology grew up with all of the things that we think of as modern. So grew up with the industrial revolution, grew up with the formation of large cities, grew up with large scale migration here. Now, I mean, at the end of the uh, 19th century, this particular migration from Europe to the U.S., but also around Europe, and I think kind of created a niche. You know, this was a kind of a splintering of various kinds of, if you think about philosophy as being a core or history as being a core, a splintering of many of those things into more kind of specialty oriented social sciences. So, political science and sociology and anthropology, again, at the end of the 19th century. So, for example, if we think about W.E.B. Du Bois, who we sociologists now embrace as a sociologist and as a founder of our discipline, his Ph.D. is in history uh, because there were no Ph.D. programs in the United States in sociology in the mid-1800s when he was studying. So the University of Chicago or the University of Kansas had the first sociology program department Uh, in the late 1800s. I don't remember the exact year, uh, but they fight about it. I wouldn't say they fight about it. The University of Chicago kind of claims it. And then uh, University of Kansas says they're wrong. But nonetheless, it was sometime (laughs) toward the end of the 1800s.
0: You know, when I think of sociology, I also think about and I'm curious about the relationship to things happening in France in the late 19th century, you know, like people like Emile Durkheim and these texts that I remember from school of, you know, the rules of sociological method and developing a science. So roughly when is that happening? And you're saying that's emerging at a certain moment in history and industrial history.
1: Yeah. So many of the folks that we often consider to be founding sociologists. So, you know, we have a pantheon, which of course is debated. So that's why I'm hesitant to even say it because my saying it reifies it. But here we go in any a intro to sociology class or a sociology theory class, you will read Max Weber, Karl Marx, and Emile Durkheim. And then, depending on where you are, you might read W.E.B. Du Bois. You might read Jane Addams. You might read Talcott Parsons, who's a little later, you might read Georg Zimmel. There are many other people you might read. There you might be read some American theorists uh Cooley and Mead but the Durkheim, Marx and Weber are definitely the Europeans that you'll read and again they were historians they were kind of big picture theorists i would say Durkheim is probably the one who was trying to mark sociology as a discipline and many of them are claimed by other fields right so Karl Marx, I mean, obviously, there are not too many economists today who claim Karl Marx, but clearly he was doing economic history and was talking about the economy. And Weber's work on bureaucracies are very much taken up by political science. And Emile Durkheim is is very much uh, discussed in anthropology. So, you know, the university creates these disciplinary boundaries, and we get so attached to them in love with them. But none of us could do what we do without the other of our fields. (laughs) I mean, for example, my own work is very historically informed. My method is very anthropological. I'm very interested in politics. And I think the same is true for the other fields as well.
0: Well, I'm glad you put it that way, because right now and for the last, at least the last 20, if not 30 years, we've all in the liberal arts been talking about interdisciplinary work. But when we Go back 100 years or 120 years or so, we see a sort of movement in the other direction of these folks, whether it's Du Bois or Marx or Durkheim or Weber, you know, training in one field uh, and working really hard to establish another. And one of the interesting strands that goes across this series is how many of us think of the disciplines as solid things, but in fact, they are very much emerging, sometimes much more recently than many folks outside those disciplines realize. So then for a moment, let's go back to W.E.B. Du Bois. As his role in the history of sociology is is reinscribed as as central, how do we understand then that historical moment differently? And how recent is it that Du Bois, as a sociologist, as key to sociology, as to the history of sociology, is understood?
1: Has been recognized. Because I think, you know, contemporaneously, Du Bois was very much in dialogue with American and European sociologists when he was alive, especially in the early part of his career. I mean, he was a lecturer in the sociology department at the University of Pennsylvania when he wrote The Philadelphia Negro, published in 1899. He began sociological labs at Atlanta University in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So he saw himself as a sociologist. He he wrote as a sociologist, he used the term sociology. (laughs) So at the time he very much, I'm not saying he was embraced or held up and kind of lauded as a, uh, pioneering sociologist, but he saw himself that way. I would say the, you know, the greater embrace of him and, um, placing him among that pantheon has happened within the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and that's not to say that people weren't reading him before because we most definitely were, but institutionally, here's where the profession is relevant. You know, we now have our highest award of career achievement named after uh, Du Bois in the American Sociological Association. There have been a number of books published about the erasure of his work and books and articles about his the erasure of his work and putting his work back in dialogue with, say, urban sociology. You know, where would urban sociology be today had we actually read and incorporated Du Bois' insights, both when he was writing and in our coursework throughout the decades? But not just urban sociology, where would sociology of race and ethnicity be? Where would cultural sociology be? Where would even kind of what we call political economy or discussions of the labor market, for example, be if we had read Black Reconstruction. So that, I would say, started within the last 15 to 20 years in sociology.
0: I like the sociological approach to answering this question, and that's very helpful.
1: Yeah. Well, the one other sociological thing I'll say about Du Bois is I think simultaneous to recognizing Du Bois, we sociologists who are interested in broadening the canon and thinking about lots of other thinkers don't want to reify and lionize Du Bois in the same way that Marx, Weber, and Durkheim have been so. Because, in fact, perhaps part of the point is that the number of people who have contributed really important and foundational ideas is way larger than any canon could ever include. It's also Logistically, way larger than any, you know, one semester theory class is going to be able to include. And that's why we have to make some decisions all the time. But in the same breath that we recognize Du Bois, we also recognize Anna Julia Cooper and Ida B. Wells. You know, Ida B. Wells surely did not have a PhD in sociology, but whose study of lynching, for example, very clearly used sociological methods, you know, statistical descriptive methods and investigative methods to understand the myths behind, for example, you know, that Black men were a threat to white women and thus that's the reason for lynching. I mean, her inquiry style is very sociological and so sociologists are claiming her as well. Uh, and then there were a lot of PhD trained sociologists in Du Bois's shop at Atlanta University and in many of the historically Black colleges and universities across the country who we also want to recognize and continue to learn from.
0: Now, you said earlier that sociology is also emerging in relationship to the Industrial Revolution. And you didn't quite say this, but let me ask you this. Certain ideas about race and racism or expressions of racism are also in operation and also being developed and also being debated, let's say. How do you think about that relationship?
1: Where do I start on that All of the big questions about society is what sociologists study. And so if you think about sociology growing up in the second half of the 19th century, you had a lot of emancipation struggles across the world. And of course, the United States with the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, but uh, freedom struggles across the world were creating new groups of people in society who had once been called property (laughs) and what to do with them and how to define them. That's kind of always been a question in the general social sciences. I mean, race science goes back surely to the 17th century and probably was even more you know, I you know definitely very strong in the early 1800s. But now when we are post-emancipation, you know, the kind of science that might have wanting to define, let's say, Black people, but this is also very relevant for Native Americans and for groups as they're moving around the world, the science that needed to define them as property and thus maintain their enslavement now has to figure out some new theories or some new frameworks, some new concepts for a newly emancipated population. Of course, the ideas of inferiority didn't disappear overnight. (laughs) But this is a moment when sociology is really growing up, again, the late 1800s. And so it's really a contested question about how Various sociologists think of Black people here in the U.S. if we just think domestically, but surely European sociologists were similarly wrestling with the question of race because their former colonies were now also experiencing emancipation, although they weren't really experiencing the kind of global movement of former colonized subjects into the European countries. And so in that regard, we might say it's European sociologists today it's French sociologists today and German sociologists today and British sociologists today who are trying to figure out what is race, because now postcolonial subjects are going to France and Germany and so on, in a moment, you know, after these nations had decided race had no place in their concept of citizenship, especially after World War II and the Holocaust. And now, you know, they're like, well, is this racism that exists in our society or is it ethnocentrism or is it xenophobia or is it, you know, kind of what is it that we're experiencing? So I think sociologists across these countries are dealing with the sociopolitical environment and trying to kind of make sense of it.
0: How do you understand that term anti-racism itself?
1: I think the term is open for deconstruction, as are all terms, but I am fine with it. I think being against racism is good. And so that's what anti racism means. And so I think it is a perfectly reasonable term. I think it is not a what, but a how and a along the way, meaning there's no point that you reach an anti racist destination. There's no moment that you are perfectly practicing anti racism. <laughs> so I appreciate the term, but don't want it to. Suggest that there is a perfection in it by uh, thinking that you can actually attain it or that any of us can actually attain it. Again, I'll just say we're swimming in the water of racism. And so to really get out of it takes a lot of work and a lot of energy that oftentimes none of us has because we're so busy swimming.
0: What does anti racism mean in sociology or what would anti racist work look like in sociology?
1: There is a growing movement for post-colonial sociology. That's, I think, a kind of way to get sociologists out of their and our U.S.-centric mindset. Um, So to think about colonialism and think about racism in the U.S. as a part of a colonial project, I think, is a direction that sociology is going that is important and that is part of this anti-racist tradition. Well, another Kind of anti racist sociology is to think about method and positivism and who controls knowledge and who produces knowledge. So, Patricia Hill Collins is perhaps the best known person in this front who talks about a Black feminist epistemology and a Black feminist standpoint that raises up the knowledge that individuals have in society and communities have in society as equal to the knowledge that we. PhD sociologists have, and how do we be conduits for the knowledge that everybody has? So I think a kind of democratization of knowledge is part of an anti racist sociology. But of course, that's a really hard hill to climb because the whole point of getting a PhD is to suggest that I have a credential that qualifies me to know something in a deeper way than you do, (laughs) Mr. or miss or non-gendered person without a PhD. (laughs) So that's a, you know, that's radical in many ways to suggest that there is knowledge at all quarters. And really what we do as PhD sociologists is to help to put that knowledge into circulation in quarters where it's not currently in circulation. So these are just examples of what I would say are kinds of anti-racist sociology and what it might look like.
0: Can you explain more what you've called the deficit perspective or Black disadvantaged research in sociology?
1: So sociology here, I'm referring specifically to research on racial stratification uh, because sociology is much bigger than research on racial stratification. But within the research on racial stratification and inequality, much of the especially quantitative research that compares Black people to white people Uh, has findings of Black disadvantage. And so by that, I mean, you know, the unemployment rate is higher among Black people than among white people. The college graduation rate is lower among Black people than among white people. And these are just simple kind of descriptive statistics that I'm giving you, but the most sophisticated statistical analysis, which would control for many other factors, often finds some of these areas of disadvantage. And I, as a sociologist of race and ethnicity, have been teaching these um, studies and teaching this field for 25 years now. And I don't doubt that those things are true. Not not only don't I doubt them, I think the, the science there is solid. And I think it's important to recognize. Indeed, I think in this regard, sociology is important in telling the world, telling the U.S. how far we are from an ideal of racial equality. And it's only because of the kinds of research that we do that we know how far we are from racial equality. But I think this disproportionate bulk of research that finds Black disadvantage also has some real negatives and some real negative influences on the public perception of Black folks and on the training of next generation sociologists, because We don't ask questions or we don't even think of domains in which Black people might do better than white people. So in doing this kind of thinking about a Black advantage vision or the opposite of Black disadvantage research, I set out to just see what had been already published about Black folks and ways in which Black folks do better than white people. So I think maybe my favorite domain is in education. And that's because a simplistic understanding of black and white inequality has it that black people do really badly in the area of education. But if you really do what we sociologists do, which is compare like with like, compare people who are alike. So here, that's what we mean by controlling for things statistically. So here, if we compare a black young person to a white young person from a similar family with a similar income and living in a similar kind of neighborhood, and um, parents with similar educations, for example. So that then kind of tries to tease out what exactly is going on with this Black child and this white child, not because one is poor and one is rich, or one has a parent with a PhD and the other one has a dropout parent or whatever. It's really about now these children that are very similar in all other ways. And then we ask, who's more likely to graduate from high school? It's actually the Black child. So that's not something we get in our everyday language because we are so focusing on the inequalities, of which there are many, that we don't celebrate the other side of the question that we could then explore a little bit more, which is what is it about Black families and Black culture that makes it so that Black children who have similar kinds of resources as white children, when they have similar kinds of resources as white children, are more likely to graduate from high school. And we have some of that research, which is when you look at young people's aspirations for college and a belief that school is important to get ahead in life, all of these kinds of what we might call values or opinions or attitudes, Black kids do really well. They really believe in education. We really believe in education. (laughs) And so that is the kind of story that is, necessary to counterbalance this really overwhelming onslaught of Black disadvantaged research.
0: As you pointed out, in focusing on what you're calling the deficit perspective or the problems or challenges that Black societies and Black kids and families might have, is designed to help address some of these problems and to motivate policy? or
1: Yes, it's designed to make folks mad. It's designed to say, we have to do something because black kids are disproportionately punished in kindergarten for example that is actually true <laughs> unfortunately it's nothing to laugh at so that's the kind of disadvantage research that's important that catalyzes hopefully that catalyzes i will say this we hope it catalyzes because uh psychologists at stanford have shown that if you Show people the statistics on racial disparities in incarceration, and you show people basically that black men are roughly five times as likely to be incarcerated as white men, and then you ask them about their policy positions, it actually makes them more punitive. And that's because they see that statistic and they read it to mean black people are more violent, and that's why they're more likely to be incarcerated, as opposed to what we social scientists want them to read into that statistic, which is that. The criminal legal system is racist. And at every step of the criminal legal process, black people get a raw deal compared to similar white people. So, for example, for charges that are of similar seriousness, black people get a longer sentence. So we can't really even know how people read our black disadvantaged vision.
0: (laughs) So in presenting this deficit perspective, The sociologist frequently is motivated by a desire to change policy, as you've said. And some of that should work if we believe in an American promise, right? You know, if for those people who are confronted and challenged by the idea that not everything is moving in the quote unquote right direction, that should have a motivating effect. But as you're showing, it actually can have a different sort of effect by keeping the framing in one direction.
1: Yeah. The disadvantaged vision, I think, can be bad. We Black folks read this and are inundated with the research that shows how bad it is, in quotation marks, to be Black. And that's damaging. (laughs) Where do we get to see how we shine? Where do we get to see how we're resilient? Where do we get to see how, despite lots of obstacles, we get ahead? Where do we get to see how we love where do we get to see how we make families you know all of the kinds of things that i think are necessary for people to feel good about themselves and thrive as as humans is not at all uh, apparent in this research so and, and by the way
0: is there a particular work or works that you think have been most influential in this sort of framing.
1: Right. Well, I grew up with the sociologists of the 1980s and 1990s, and William Julius Wilson's work, The Truly Disadvantaged, and then later when work disappears, was surely all the talk of the sociology of the 80s and 90s. And he has created many students, myself included. And even my first book, Black Picket Fences, the whole thesis behind Black Picket Fences, which is a study of the Black middle class, is that the Black middle class is not equal to the white middle class, that the Black middle class lives in neighborhoods that have higher crime rates. The Black middle class is more likely lower middle class than upper middle class. The Black middle class has more poverty within their extended families. The Black middle class is much more economically fragile, you know, on and on. So I participated in that as well.
0: (laughs) And so how did you come to have that shift? In the spring of 2021, to jump very much closer to the present, your article, Black Advantage Vision, was published in the journal Issues in Race and Society. How did you kind of come to see the framing, perhaps, or the unintended consequences, let's say, of the work that Wilson was doing and even that you're saying that you're doing in your earlier work?
1: So I would say it was not a wholesale switch. It's... um... It's always there. So even in Black Picket Fences, where the thesis really is the unequal reality of Black middle-class folks vis-a-vis white middle-class folks, there is a chapter in there called Nike's Reign. And I also wrote an a article called Black Church Culture as a Strategy of Action. I was always very attuned to Black life that was not in comparison to white life, that was Black life making meaning on its own terms. So in the book, it was really just about young people, you know, creating their sense of worth through how they dressed or how they talked or what they wore on their feet. It's about Nikes. (laughs) And in the article I wrote called Black Church Culture as a Strategy of Action, it was about the infusion of Black Protestant religious styles, call and response, preaching and so on in various efforts to you know, clean up the neighborhood, to reduce violence and so on. So these were all about how Black folks are doing all the things that I just mentioned, how Black folks are loving each other and creating community and striving and being resilient. So this has always been a part of my work because it's been a part of my experience as a Black person. And I became a sociologist because I'm interested in Black communities and Black communities are both and. They're both the experience of racism and the disadvantages that racism creates. And they are places of creation and support and imagination that I've always known to be a part of black life. So that was there in my first work, and it has I think been in all of the things that I continue to write. But I think the real motivation, sure not I think I know the inspiration to write Black Advantage Vision was teaching. It was teaching undergrads when the bulk of the research that we can use in our classrooms that we can assign to students to read is dreary. And I think damaging to my black students and damaging to my white students, because all they learn, all they hear about black people is how bad it is to be black. And I would say then they learn the obverse, which is how good it is to be white. But, you know, I quote James Baldwin Ice Cube, W.E.B. Du Bois, Black folks have said this all along, like, why are white people the standard by which we should judge ourselves? And white people have some transformation that they need to do as well. So this piece is really to, you know, think about my students in my classroom and trying to make sure that I'm not further debilitating Black students or further making entitled white students as they listen to this sociology that we've
0: produced. What do you see as the emancipatory potential in taking the positive research agenda and shifting from what you call the deficit perspective to the more positive research agenda?
1: I actually end the article on Black Advantage Vision suggesting that it actually is not all that transformational or revolutionary because Black Advantage Vision and the kind of research that I'm calling for in that paper still compares Black people to white people. The purpose of that research is to find domains in which Black people do better than white people which I think is very possible to do. And I go through a number of studies that already do that. But that still is in this comparative mode. And I think that's not going to completely revolutionize or undermine that stratification uh, framework that suggests white people are the standard. It can do it a little bit because It can set up then some studies and some empirical findings where black people become the standard. And then you ask the question, well, what's wrong with white people that they don't graduate from high school when they have this amount of income or what have you? So it can do a little bit of that, but I don't think it's super transformational. I think the real transformation, and this is the way I end this article, is really to think about. What is important for human thriving? What is important for us to be healthy and to live with each other in positive social relationships and so on? And how do we get everybody that? So, as I kind of put it in that article, do black people have to have the home ownership rates of white people to be happy? And homeownership is really an interesting domain because it's a domain that black people show a disadvantage. And we know homeownership is important for generational wealth, and so on and so forth. But homeownership has an ugly underside. There's research on this as well. It creates a kind of insularity of place that is what creates NIMBY, for example, not in my backyard. It creates a privileging of property values over communal use of things. It prioritizes private property. It makes us all very self-invested because this is an individual investment that we are trying to protect. Ryan McCabe has a really good book on this. So, in some regards, maybe the answer to the question about black people not having the home ownership rates of white people is that no, black people don't need the home ownership rates of white people. Maybe in this society where wealth you know is our safety net when we get older, you know, that does create some disadvantages. But Homeownership has an underbelly that we should be mindful of. So I think what's much more revolutionary and transformational is to think about what we need to survive and thrive and to build community and to be in community with each other. And how do we get that for
0: everybody? Thank you so much for taking the time and having the patience to have this conversation and the work that you're doing is just so important and innovative. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriella Garcia-Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green.